sometimes it can go down a different road and it's all it's all good. I played so, with the Black Duck Mills band too. Uh, I soloed with them. Wow, I guess I don't know. It was in London. I can't remember. What that's year it was. A, that's something I did not know. Yeah, well, oh, I, oh, you know, I premiered the uh, the the piece uh, uh, Concertino. Uh, what's by what's his name? Uh, oh. uh. It's a two trumpet it's for two trumpets. That's a good story. Oh boy, what's the guy's name? Jeez. We're all little brass players, so we're not going to get this one. Oh, it's a, it's a real popular piece. I mean, there's a Vivaldi one. No, no, no. It's just this is a piece written by an English composer. <laughs> Come on, Aaron. He's not that old. <laughs> I don't know. I literally, I just, I'm, I'm, I was like, hey, let me look up. Oh, I guess it was a premiere, wasn't it? Oh, my bad. I'll find it. I'll Context find clues it. are helpful, isn't it? It's yeah, in my phone. Tell us about Vivaldi commission. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> that guy that guy's going places, I hear. He might have Let's something. See. Recital classical piece PDFs. Recital music. It should be in here. Horovitz. 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 That's who it is. I, I I didn't even need to look it up. Do you oh, wow. with you? Yeah, it was a concertino for two and Manny Loriano from the Minnesota Orchestra and I did the premiere of it. Wow. Is it for trumpets or cornets? <laughs> that's that's the story, actually. If you twit behind that, I called up Manny, and you know, uh, we'll we'll tell it on the air because people will like it. It's pretty funny. It's it's uh, the piece, uh, you know, it was for for the Black Dyke Mills band was doing it with us, and so I called up Manny. I said, Manny, I said, look, we can't show up with trumpets, man. I said, you know, so I got to get a cornet. So I got a, a Shilky cornet. And he had, I don't know, Monet or something. And, you know, he went out and bought, a, you know, a cornet. And I bought a cornet. So we're, you know, we we're practiced and and we got together the day before in London and we practiced some, you know. And then about an hour later, the composer shows up and we're practicing, you know, and he kind of comes in the room and he goes, gentlemen, gentlemen. I said, oh, hi. Yeah, he says, where are your trumpets? I didn't, I didn't even bring a trumpet actually you know it was like we had to we had to find trumpets and play them and it was really weird it was you know it was, but it was because because he wanted to hear the difference between the trumpets and the brass band sound but it didn't say trumpets on the part you know you when you play with a brass band you assume it's you know it's, it's cornet and, and at the time you know you couldn't really get in touch with people it was like in the 1970s you couldn't you know, send them an email or something, you know. So did they even have trumpets laying around in London somewhere? Oh, yeah, they had a lot, a lot of trumpets. It was the Trumpet Guild. It was a Trumpet Guild co convention. Okay. So, they so had a couple, there were a couple there. For you. Yeah, it was a plenty. <laughs> yeah. But it was easy to get a trumpet. But but it was so different playing it on trumpet than it was on cornet. You know, it was a whole different way of preparing. So we did all right. We got through it okay, you know. But, you know, you're playing with this fantastic band and... uh Phil McCann actually was playing the first cornet part in, in the black. He sounded great. Uh, well, that whole band sounded tremendous. And uh, what's yeah. his name was conducted? Uh, Peter Parks, I think. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. that goes back a ways. Oh, yeah, that was that was that was 40 plus years ago. I'm pretty sure it was in maybe maybe 1980. Maybe. Maybe it was a little later than that. Maybe it was 85. 
It was about 40, almost 40 years. Yeah, 35 so years. How long after that um, did it take you to decide to start a brass band of your own? Like, di didn't you have a lot to do with Battle Creek starting up or Lexington? No, no, uh, that was the, the Gray Brothers. Lexington Brass Band, Ron, really, and uh, a, a guy named Mike Swaffer, who was a, he was a Yamaha rep. Yeah, and and that was the time when brass bands were uh, uh, there weren't very many in the U.S. Only the brass, the Columbus was the first one, I believe, that was a steady every you know every week thing besides Salvation Army bands, and uh, so that was uh, kind of the model for American brass bands, and we started not maybe a year later or two you know in Lexington, and Ron really Ron Holtz was. He was really the moving force behind it, and I, I, I was glad to play, you know, just to play because I'd never really done that much, so it was something for me to learn and learn the literature, so, you know. What was what was the motivation to make that happen? Like, did y'all just wake up one day and you're like, you know what? I liked cornet. That was fun. Let's uh, let's bring yeah. that back. No, no, it wasn't like that really. <laughs> what what it really was was uh, was trying to, you know, have another community bands really were really on the downswing for probably 20 years by that time, you know, and, uh, and, and learning, learning to play an instrument, uh, besides public school music was almost non-existent in America, you know, except for a few diehard bands like the Reading band in Pennsylvania and a few other, you know, community bands in large cities and stuff like that. But, uh, but brass bands were, were, you know, were traditionally in really small towns. They weren't, you know, that big. They were only 20, you know, 20 some players, 23. And, you know, some of them were bigger. Lexington was bigger than that. It was about 30 because we really weren't competitive at first. You know, they wanted to compete. I didn't really like competing. I felt like, you know, it was kind of funny, it, you know, as a person that made a living playing trumpet uh, to compete with people that were amateurs and stuff. I, I just, you know, I didn't know. I, I felt funny about that. I, I just thought it wasn't, but I, I did it a few times because Ron wanted me to play and stuff. So I did it, but I didn't really like the comp competition part of it myself, but I, I nothing wrong with it. I mean, I, I loved going and hear the groups that that was fantastic. And, and today, I mean, that really the, the brass band at Columbus, St. Louis, New Jersey, uh, I forget the name of that band. Atlantic. Atlantic Brass Band, right. And and uh and, and who? Lexington Brass who? Band. Who's the Atlantic Brass Band? We don't we don't know anything about that. <laughs> uh, uh, what's his name? Sal Scarpa. <laughs> Sal Scarpa. <laughs> yeah. Amy played principal euphonium in uh in Atlantic for a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. like almost ten years I Yeah, Sal Scarpa yeah, was a good arranger. Uh he was a good uh, trombone player and uh he, he, I, I thought he turned out to be a really fine director. I didn't, you know, I only saw him maybe once a year. So I, I really can't, you know, say that I, I know everything about him, but he, he was a really great arranger too at Eastman, went to Eastman in the summers and, and fantastic, you know, mind for arranging and, and stuff like that. So those bands really became models. And of course, Navas sort of started right around that early time. And, you know, there was, uh, I think there weren't that many groups, you know, that really, and then they started to develop. And, and Yamaha was uh, instrumental in helping because 
they had uh, alto horns and you know tenor horns and things and i think they were interested also in in you know uh the, the business part of a brass band so uh you know good euphoniums compensating euphoniums all those different types of things you know they kind of had an e-flat cornets Shilke made an e-flat cornet and there's really still the kind of standard of the e-flat cornet uh, but there are others that are yamahas are good too so but i think it was it's, it was a kind of a combination of uh people that you know played in in uh, salvation army bands i mean I, I i went and played with ron's band i don't even know how many times in in asbury college when it was asbury college and not asbury university you know uh, but ron ron was one of the most important factors in the development of the brass band in America. His dad was the conductor of the New York staff band way back, you know, and him and Phil Smith were kind of like, they, they spent every summer together at the Salvation Army camps teaching and playing in the groups. And uh, many of the other people uh, many of the directors of the first uh, brass bands uh, that weren't Salvation Army bands were Salvation Army people. Yeah. And they had Salv Salvation Army connections. So, and of course the music at the time, you really weren't supposed to play any Salvation Army music. It wasn't, a, you know, it was a kind of a, 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 you know, couldn't do it. You weren't supposed to do it. It was a few arrangements that you could use sort of. But now, you know, Salvation Army is uh, selling all that music and that's great because some of the arrangements are just iconic, you know, uh, brass band sounding and orchestrations and everybody needs to hear all that too because now the arrangers in the U.S. are getting really good at writing brass band music because they, they've heard all these uh, scenarios that have happened over 150 years of, of, of bands, you know, starting back in England, the company bands and everything. Ron wrote two really good books about the brass band uh, movement and everything. They're fantastic. My yeah. first, you know, books, right? They're about the, the, the Salvation Army starting in the United States. And right. Yeah, I've read those. Yeah. Oh, they're great. And, and, and it, you know, ties a lot of stuff together. If you're into, in, into brass banding, and you know, it, it's really a good thing to read because it explains a lot of the, the, the things about it. And of course, like I say, Ron was very instrumental. And I mean, Ron was tireless. Ron Holtz, he still is. I mean, he's still doing stuff down in Atlanta. His, brother, his brother's down there still. And, and uh, so he's always subbing into the band and, and doing things, you know, and writing arrangements still. Some of his arrangements are fantastic too. All of the ones I've heard are, are really, really fine arrangements. He did, he did ones for me of... Yeah. Uh, Bernard Fitzgerald pieces and, uh, and and other things, you know, that he just said, well, this would be nice for brass band. I'll do it. And, you know, a week later he's done and you're playing it, you know, I mean, he, all by written by hand because he didn't really use a notation, you know, electronic notation. So, I mean, Ron was just always busy. And I said, Ron, you know, how come you're not as good as your wife? Because she's even worse. She did the choirs at, 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 uh, at uh, Asbury. Uh -huh. And she was the greatest teacher there. I used to just get there early because hear her sometimes rehearse in her choirs because she was so good at it, you know. And uh, 
And that's an important part, I think, of, of uh, a lot of the brass band music comes out of the singing school, really, when you think about it, because uh, most people don't realize that a lot of the Salvation Act was to accompany singing and to accompany the, uh, the, the uh, recruitment yeah. effort of the Salvation Army. So there was a lot of different aspects and music was always one of the biggest aspects uh, because it was out in the public, you know, uh, the church services that they had the, you know, the Salvation Army services uh, were, you know, they were more private and they were formal. Uh, and so I've been to a few, so I don't know if they're all like that, but, but you know, uh, but, but the, uh, the, the, the things they do in public and also, you know, my, my, my father-in-law uh, who passed away a few years ago, uh, he was a, a, a lifetime supporter of the Salvation Army in, in Danville. And I mean, he did a lot of things for them and everything from helping get vehicles because he's a car dealer. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, he was always helping out. We would go to the dinners and everything, you know, all the, and they were, it was just wonderful. And I was, that's one of the reasons I really enjoyed it because I knew how much uh, the, the, the mission of that group was to help people. I, I didn't really, you know, that's the important thing in everything we do is to help people, whether it's a brass band that's a, you know, outside the Salvation Army or one that's inside. It's all meant to help people. And, uh, and, and like I said, with the decline of the American uh, community band, you know, uh, they used to be supported by towns, sort of like the brass bands were re supported by companies. And some of them are still like that. I mean, I went to uh, Vermont. I'm trying to think of where in Vermont it was, but they still rehearsed in the in the basement of the town hall. Huh. They were still supported by the the, the the mayor's office, so to speak. Yeah, I'm sure that's more of a, a an anomaly nowadays. Exactly, exactly. You know, and and uh, but in a way, that's that's kind of a, a good thing in, in in a sense when you look at it. In it from the positive point, if there is one, is the fact that you have total control over what you do. You're yeah. not beholden to many, you know, entities aside from the people in the band and the people who help you put it on. Oh, which we need, we need you to play this ribbon cutting ceremony. Ah. What you do? Which one? We need you to play this ribbon cutting ceremony. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we can't play that gig. No, you have to. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's okay. It's all right, you know, doing a few things. I mean, I, I, I never really judge the event as much as it, what it's gonna do for people. Yeah. You know, uh, it doesn't, nothing matters to me more than how it affects people. And Lexington Brass Band, I enjoyed that a lot. Well, you know, I, like I said, I played with, with, the, with the Lexington Brass Band early on, made the earliest recordings. We went to Midwest and I played, uh, what did I play? Hedger Cotty, uh, Raphael Mendez thing. Yeah, I remember playing, I was in the band with you. Yeah. And Ronnie used to go faster and faster at the end. And the, <laughs> the parts were like, there were like four, only four lines per page. So there's like 11. Oh yeah. So you're just like going like that. Oh yeah, yeah. You, you like made these things a little bit fewer pages. Ron. You were turning pages all day. But we had a good time. I said, you just keep going, Ron. I, I think I can keep up. It's in the key of F. Only need two fingers. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was great. But I loved, I loved, really, I loved doing the Lexington Brass Band because of Ron. Ron was so passionate about it, always. 
you know, and I used to get, he used to get people nervous, you know, because, because he was so serious about, you know, getting everything done, you know, and, but I understood that. I, I got that, you know, right. I, the only time I ever used to stop, I said, Ron, give me a chance to put the mouthpiece on here. Okay. He used to get, <laughs> he'd get right up and start. I mean, he would start and I, by the time I got my horn up, I'd already missed the first two bars, you know, yeah, he, he was all business. I think there was a time in the Lexington Brass Band where you and Terry Everson were sitting on the front. Oh, yeah. Table, right? Yeah, matter of fact, we played uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town at the Midwest. Yeah, I remember together. that. We did that together. And the, the first place I played that was uh, at, with Battle Creek. Yeah, okay. And, and uh, that was with uh, Danny. Uh, oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's terrible. I can't remember his last name. Danny, Danny was a great trumpet player. He passed away about two years ago two or three and uh, uh, he just he was just a great player he was you know he was a very uh, uh, unique person and and uh, you know people thought he was really a pussycat but but people were afraid of him like and and I, and I used to go you know you talk about the Danny Barber and Danny. yeah and they used to talk I, I say are you talking about the same Danny that plays with me in Battle Creek? You get along with him? I said, yeah, he's great. I said, well, you're one of the only guys he likes then. He doesn't like anybody. I said, oh, you just, you know, you're just, you know, you gotta get with him. I mean, he's, you know, he's very shy actually, you know, but he, he doesn't like people to push on him. I said, and he gets, you know, he gives you a little feedback. So, but me and Danny played that first with Battle Creek, and we recorded it actually on the Christmas album, the, the Battle Creek Christmas, which is one of my all-time favorite things that I've ever done. Was play on that Christmas album. Yeah, you know, some of those early Battle Creek albums were spectacular. They really were. They were, you know, well, it was new, and there were really, really great players from the U.S. and uh, some from England, and uh, you know, and that that was helpful because when we played. Uh, traditional brass band music, I knew exactly what to do. Just listen to, you know, uh, Steve Mead and, and listen to, you know, whoever else was uh, Billy, Crazy Billy, the uh, alto horn player. Oh, <laughs> he, oh he, he was something else. And, and But he was a great player. He was like one of those paid players in, in England. You know, he, he was one of those people who, yeah. And I mean, you just listen to them play and you know it it's live it's different than listening to recordings of right. english brass bands they sound great too but but when you hear those players playing that way you're ready to just hop right in there and do it you know and at the same time um i hope that they brought back to england some of the things that we did with american music in the brass band yeah you know it used to be some blowback on you know you should be playing cornets on everything i said no you don't i said harry james never played a cornet and i'm playing a harry james tune i'm not playing a cornet there's no way it's just not going to happen you know didn't, didn't go over real well but i still played trumpet and i did it every time we did that kind of thing yeah otherwise it doesn't sound like the the music you know, right. I, it's an American brass band, and that was the great thing about Battle Creek, and I think it still is. Just they, they still, uh, you know, there's a there's a uh, 
component to it that's not an English brass band. Right. You know, it, it, the jazz playing is uh, very much American. Yeah. Jazz playing. Yeah. It's not like, you know, if you hear recordings of things like uh, uh, even the three, we three kings. Yeah. Okay. Three kings well, swing. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, an English brass band, they sound wonderful. And the soloists just, and now there's no chord changes. Right. So, so I sat down and wrote out the actual chord changes to the, because they're not like the regular We Three Kings. There's all these chromatic changes in it, yeah. you know, and everything. Because the first time I played through it, I was going, oh man, this is, this solo doesn't work. It was a written out solo. Right, right. I said, I said, I can't play that. It just didn't, it wasn't me, you know I mean? I'm trying to improvise it and play. It doesn't sound like I, so I said, I'm just going to, let me just write this out. Because it was only about 16 bars long or something, you know? Yeah. So I just kind of penciled in, we read through it. Uh, and I wrote the chord changes out as they were playing. So that I could didn't have to play at the same time, you know. Right. And I did it twice, and then I, I had pretty much, you know, gotten it. And uh, th I love playing that. See, that the whole album is just like my favorite. We did the uh, uh, what do you call it? Twelve Days of Christmas. Yeah. Oh, that that was that's another one. See, but this is it was uniquely American. Yeah. You know. And, now, and I remember. Yeah. Were you still playing in the band when they went to Cincinnati for the, the Nabba Gala concert in 2002? I don't think so. They, they, uh, I played. I Actually, I was there. I played with the Lex. I played a solo with the Lex and Brass Band. Yeah. I played uh, Ness and Dorma. Okay. With, with the band. I remember that because it was it was fun to do. And, uh, you know, I played with them for about, I don't know, at least 10 years, I believe. It was probably around 10 years. And then, you know, they just, I think they just started switching people around and trying to get a different sound out of the band, you know, and that's, that's fine. You know, it's, I think it's a good thing for, for things to, to uh, morph into something else, you know, yeah. and uh, otherwise, otherwise you're actually, you're in a, a narrow kind of lane, you know, yeah. that's, what's great about a lot of the bands, like, like your bands in, in North Carolina. They branch out to you're doing all kinds of different music, and of course, then your audience is bigger too. And 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 who says music should always stay the same? You know, if it's if it's not in the contest literature or if it's not in the traditional literature that you know that goes down the years. Yeah. Well, if you stay there, well, all those people are going to disappear, and you're not going to have any audience. Yeah, because, that's what's you know, great about brass bands is they're so versatile. They can play it, so many, so many genres. Exactly, and you know, and I played with the uh, uh, the band and uh, uh, Gabriel was in the one Gabriel was in with a euphonium player for UK conductor. Over wow. at, it meets in like uh, Winston Salem. Oh, uh, the North Carolina brass band. Yeah, yeah, I played with them with Gabriel. And it was great fun. It was a nice group, you know, and, and uh, see, but there's a, I think the thing about American brass bands, brass band of Battle Creek is kind of a professional gig, like, you know what I mean? You get yeah. paid and all that. But traditional brass bands, except for a few, you know, people they bring in to solo, nobody gets paid. 
everybody everybody lives there or lives in the in the general vicinity and they have their own little band room in some old hut or something you know i mean i went to some great <laughs> brass band rehearsals in england i mean i was just cory band the cory band i went to their rehearsal and you know you know what i noticed besides all the trophies was uh they rehearsed upstairs you know yeah in a and when I got into the staircase, the thing that impressed me the most was the fact that on the edges of the stairs, it was that thick. And in the middle, it was that thick. All the yeah. people had walked up those stairs. Oh, yeah. To that band room forever. I mean, yeah. when you think about it, I mean, whoa. I mean that that just blew my mind. You know, I was doing a I was doing a tour uh, for uh, Shilky Trumpets, and one of them was in, uh, you know, in Wales. And so he said, "Do you want to go hear the Cory Band? They're playing the rehearsal tonight." I said, "Oh yeah, man, are you kidding? Let's go!" So I went to hear them, and then they were at, and afterwards they have a room in this pub that nobody uses except them. <laughs> It's empty the rest of the week. Nobody uses it. It's their room. <laughs> and I imagine they must have parties in there or something occasionally, but it was it was fantastic. And all these people, they not only did they enjoy the rehearsal, they enjoyed the getting together afterwards and talking and laughing and you know, drinking and staying there to who knows when. I, I had to leave. I was so tired. I was going, <laughs> I gotta have to go, guys. I'm sorry, but you know. They said, "Oh, that's okay. We're, we'll be here quite a while longer." And yeah. they, you know, they would just stay until till it was over. But yeah. but that's the that's the part in the American brass band that is not as strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Um, you know, yeah. Amer Americans approach even brass banding from a community band standpoint, where you come, you play the rehearsal, and then you leave. And yeah. brass banding is more about the community and the and the culture and you hang out with these people you you're friends with these people you spend a lot of time with these people so you go out drinking and you go out to dinner and you yeah. go contesting weekends and spend the whole week these are your, your right exactly family. and we have we we struggle to get that aspect of it in american brass bands well there's you know there's of course there's some cultural differences like the the size of the place you live yeah their jobs most most families have both parents working yeah you know and stuff and i mean it's really challenging here because i mean uh, you know everybody complains about like socialize this and socialize that but when it comes to countries like norway you you don't have to worry about watching your kid for 4 hours because it's paid for by the government you can do things you 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 know there's there's some leeway I, I, that was the most amazing thing when I went to places and learned. They'd say, uh, "Oh, I'm going to go drop off. I'm going to go uh, drop off Mike here at the where? Oh, at the, at the uh, our our nursery place." I said, "Wow, because everything's <laughs> so expensive, and you know, in Norway, you go there, man. You you spend forty dollars for lunch, and, <laughs> and, and and you only get one piece of bread with some with some meat on it, you know, and that's it. It's forty dollars, so." But, but the people, you know, they can, they have free, uh, free, I mean, nothing's free, 
but it's or the way it's organized is they pay a 21% value added tax. You don't get it back for nothing. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are, you pay the tax. And then all those things like your health care are paid for. And childcare for a certain amount of time. And if you need more, you pay a minimum amount to have more time. So it's it's uh, it's a different system. And therefore, the social parts of everything changes yeah. because of that. You know, you, you have a you know, you have a night when brass band is nobody does anything except that. That's it. Right. You know, you don't have to worry about having a conflict. Well, I got to do this. I can't do that. How many of you can make it? No, I can't make it this week. You know, and, and in, I mean, I wouldn't think of that hardly in any, you know, a British or Scandinavian brass band. I mean, and they also grow up in that band. A lot of them, yeah. See, like, like that was one thing about the Advocate Band. I don't know if you remember, but Gabriel sat right next to me. Um, My son. I can't remember if he was... When when maybe, I was, he may have been too. I don't think he was playing yet when I was there. Yeah. Well, when once he started to play, he really couldn't read music. I never, I never forced him to do anything because I just didn't. You know, I, I wasn't that type of person. But finally, one day he said, "Yeah, well, you know, I think I want to play a little more." I said, "Well, okay, well then you're gonna play in the town band with me." And he said, "Well, I can't really read. You'll you'll get it. Don't worry." So he would sit next to me, and I'd play the first time through the marches and stuff like that. I'd say, okay, you play the second time through. Of course, at first he couldn't do any of it. Yeah. But but when when you have to do it, you know, it's almost like the person you throw in the water and say, okay, swim. here's a life preserver. Try to swim a little bit, and then we'll see how how long it takes you to learn to swim. And see, brass banding is a lifetime experience. It's not it's not uh, the community band you play in for three years. Right. You know, it, it's it's not that at all. So, so the, the cultural difference and the, the size of the town, I mean, the brass band in most of those towns, whether it was a company band in the 1800s or it continued into, you know, the, the 20th century and still goes on. Uh, and they become a little less that, like that. They're sponsored by usually one or two big sponsors or something like that usually. But I don't know what they're doing now. I, have, I haven't been in the, the uh, English mode. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. Go ahead, Amy. Go ahead, Amy. No, I was just saying that I think I think with that cultural difference is that I remember little kids sometimes just being at rehearsal in some of the in in some of the bands. And I mean there was one time that there was I was sitting there and then another person was sitting two chairs down and between us was was her kid with a pocket trumpet, just you know make believe, make him believe. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so I think that their community music making is um, is lifelong. And many of these kids don't even remember a time that they, they weren't. Yeah, that they didn't play because by the time they have established memories, yeah, been mixed in with the brass band or community ensembles. And so I think that that, that is a, a huge reason why so many people after high school in the UK continue to play music. We have this big problem in the US, in my opinion, that people put away their instrument and that's it, they're done. But in the UK, a much larger percentage of people are, are continuing to play throughout their lives. I used, was, to, I used to gig down in West Palm 
like in jazz bands and stuff like that, and we'd have these old blue hair people come up to us. They'd be like, like you, you were, no, <laughs> you know, they were, they, you know, I wasn't good. Yeah. But, uh, so they would come up and they'd be like, you remind me of my, my grand cousin who played kazoo in the Sousa band. You know, they're the, these kind of people and they, and like bless their heart. Um, they paid a lot of money to be there. And I, the amount of times that somebody would go, you know, oh, I used to march clarinet in the high school band, you know, or whatever. And I, and the answer is always this. The answer has always been when I ask them. Oh, do you still play? They always go no, comma, but I wish I, I wish I still did. Every single one of them ends with that tag of I wish I still did, and uh, they and yeah. it, there's also it seems to be this intimidation of like oh you know you you your light when they go, become empty nesters or whatever going back and playing clarinet in the you know the brigade band of you know you know their Waynesboro Virginia town um but it's it's a thing like you're you're they would be welcome to have you I feel like they have they feel like they have to be these like virtuosos to come back well that was the good part about the the advocate band in danville uh that started in uh, approximately 1987 and the reason it started which is uh we you know we I, we needed something to do and uh it, it didn't really it happened because of a political event actually it danville is known as the city of firsts had the first post office east of the Alleghenies, the first this, the first that, you know, and, and they have all these plaques in the, the, the uh, near the courthouse that has all that information on it. But so uh, somebody, uh, they were, they decided to have the first political debate of the governor's race of that year and all the other candidates in the different offices in Danville. You know, and they were going to do it old style. They're going to have like a hay wagon, all that, which is what they did. So they said, well, we got to have a band for this because there was always a band at these things way back, you know. So they asked George Foreman to put a band together. And he had a, he had a whole bunch of music that he had from Iowa when he was there. And, and he called me and I actually couldn't do it because I was going to be away, I thought. So I had one of my, uh, Paul Klontz was, uh, he actually ended up playing in the Army Harold Trumpets for about 20 years. And uh, Paul played, and actually, I could go because my gig got canceled, but I wasn't gonna, you know, take him out of the job. I just said, I'm just gonna go and see this thing. And uh, so the first performance was in 1987 at the preliminary, you know, the very first uh, rally uh, debate for the governor. And, and it was pretty neat. I said, boy, this is really cool. And I told George Foreman at the time, I said, George, I said, you know, I, I would have played, but I didn't want to get Paul to, you know, not play. So, so he says, I said, but you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this, get this band together? I said, this would be a lot of fun. And he thought I was kidding. He thought I was like, you know, <laughs> what's this guy going to play in his band? You know, I said, no, I said, I'd love to do it. So he called it, you know. And everybody started calling the newspaper because Mary Shores, the lady that uh, ran the newspaper, she she kept getting calls saying, when is the band going to play again? <laughs> everybody kept asking when the band was going to play. So she called up George and said, George, look, you're going to have to, we got to get some concerts together in the park or something. So that's how the, the Advocate Band really started. And then we and George, you know, we're always hanging out together. They, they used to say, you guys are not allowed to meet for more than five minutes and we have to be able to see you. 
because every time we did something, it was going to be a, some kind of a production. And that's how the band festival started. Yeah. Me and how, George. How did, how did the advocate band feed into or, or build up into the festival starting? Okay. Well, George and I were headed to Cincinnati for, believe it or not, a postcard show because George collects uh, any kind of band memorabilia. He would, we were just on the phone today. We were, I'm picking up this poster for him of, a, I forget her name, uh, Claire something. She's, she was a female cornetist back in the 1880s. Great cornet player. And there's a big color poster of her. So I'm going to pick it up on my way back from Interlochen. And he wants that one. So I'm buying that for him. And he's going to give me one of his others. He's got tons of them. But anyway, we went to the postcard show. And on the way there, I said, well, George, you know, the band's, the band's pretty good. Why don't we like have a day of music, you know, something where, and I'll call up people like, you know, Empire Brass, the Canadian Brass or somebody. We'll see if we can get them to come and have, you know, some local bands and, uh, you know, it'll be fun. I, I, so we got this band called the uh, uh, Kentuckiana Brass. It's all mm -hmm. college teachers. You know, I said, yeah, they'll play. We want to, we want to play. That's a good group. And so we, we had about, I don't know, about, we put it together, this program, we, and George calls about two weeks later, and he says, Vince, what do you, what do you got uh, tomorrow afternoon? I said, well, I got a student at three, but I probably can change it. What do you need? He says, well, you have to come to Danville. You have to come home, and we're going to have a meeting of the Great American Brass Band Festival Commission. I said, what the heck is that? He goes, don't you remember we were talking about you know, getting this thing. George had already organized the whole thing. He got it all together. He says, now we just have to get those groups. So let's talk. Let's get, you know, we'll get that. So I called up some people and before you know it. And at that very first festival, 17,000 people showed up. Wow. That was the very first festival. Holy cow. Yeah. 17,000. You know, well, we, you know, there was advertising. Vanity Fair put a thing in it. And, uh, you know, it was voted one of the top things to go to in Kentucky that summer or something, you know, I, George is, a, you know, his job is promoting music. Yeah. That's what he did with the series. I mean, we had the Vienna Philharmonic in Danville. How many people have had the Vienna Philharmonic? The, the shirts were great, man. The shirt said yeah. on the back, it said town hall, New York city, center college, Danville, Kentucky. That was <laughs> the only two places they went. Wow. They stayed here for a week in Danville. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I remember seeing the Montreal Symphony. Montreal, uh, right, Montreal. right, right. Montreal, uh, Philadelphia was there. And we, we, George, before he left, we were just starting to work on Chicago Symphony because wow. they always performed in uh, Champaign-Urbana before they started their regular season. Yeah. And we were working on getting the orchestra on that trip, see. That would be but, cool. But he left and, you know. But, but yeah, they had, uh, we had Russian orchestra almost every other year. We had uh, chamber music, uh, Lincoln Center, chamber players. Well, the, the town seems to really, the town seems to really get behind it. I mean, I've only done the festival once. I did it with the Salvation yeah. Army Band right, um, with, right. with National Capital. But we, we bunked in like, I think it was like, maybe college dorms or something like that. We got put up in something that was, it. The, you know, the Salvation Army had to, like, they worked it out for us, but, like, right. it was brought up by the, some organizer for the thing. Like, it seems like the town seems to get behind the art pretty oh, no, well. It, that was, that, see, that was really, 
the thing I liked the most about the festival, besides just the music part of it, was every year, everybody did something. You know, whether they uh, helped, you know, fold shirts up for the, or they were setting up chairs and tables for the picnic, or they helped bring the bands on and off, you know, and, and, and most everybody wasn't paid. It was, it was a, I never made a nickel playing at the, you know, organizing the band festival. A couple of times I actually got paid for playing in the advocate band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. You know, but, but Caleb Hudson played in the advocate band. Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. He played in the advocate band and you know, you know how that happened? Uh, I judged him in a festival in England and I'd never met him before, but Rich Bird was his teacher. And he kept telling me about this student he had. He said, man, this kid, forget it. He says he can play anything I give him. He just, he works on it until he gets it, you know. I said, well, I'll have to meet him sometime. So I went to judge this festival in, in England. And it was at the at the Trumpet Guild. It was in Manchester. And uh, uh, his name was on this list. I said, well, this must be the kid from Lexington, Kentucky. I didn't know who he was, I, except he was from Lexington. I said, it's got to be him, I said, because... Nobody I know plays like Rich as this guy does. Yeah. So anyway, so he won the competition, you know, and he was there with his mom and his mom, their family is just wonderful people. And so at the end of the competition, I said, well, Caleb, I said, you know, that was just great. Rich has told me a lot about you. And what I'd like you to do now is I'd like you to come play that Grand Russian Fantasia with the town band in Danville and you'll be paid for that. And he went, wow, that'd be great. You know, so he came and played it, man, and he just killed it. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And so then uh, he said, his mom came up to me afterwards. She said, you know, do you think it'd be all right if he came to the, and played in the band? <laughs> see, because she, they, they could see the value. Yeah. And that's, I said, he'll sit exactly where Gabriel sat, right next yeah. to me, and we'll play together. Yeah. Well, and, the, the... And, you know? Yeah, the coolest thing about playing in that band is like in the spring and in the fall, there was a three concert series. And I remember sometimes Earl Louder would play. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like one of the finest euphonium players you'll ever hear. And he, he just played solos all the time. You played solos almost every concert. Ted Haley. Do you remember Ted Haley? No. He was the euphonium player. Yes. That, yes. The, that was the original euphonium player. And Ted, I, I think he did something like with the built electric power plants or something. I don't know what he did. He was an engineer of some sort. But he had all of his euphonium solos memorized. Yeah. The guy, yeah, he played them and he just play them down. And he, you know, and then he, you know, he played cello too. And he was well, a great we'll guy. Talk about that. And that's, that's yeah. You no, know, he was great. <laughs> but, but you know, that's the beauty of brass bands all over the world is that people learn from, they learn a lot of things from the people they sit next to. Yeah. Like, you know, Gabriel sitting next to me, learned to read music. He learned how to, you know, be a member of the band. He knew, he started to learn what to say and what not to say, you know, and all yeah. those things. That's, and, and you're, you're dealing with people that, see, I think that uh, when, when they create, uh, like, uh, I don't know what you really call them, community centers. 
They ought to have two kinds of people there. Retired people or older people that have time to give and young kids that need a place to go after school. Yeah. And I'm, I, we're working on that now in, in some ways in Danville. Yeah. Because, because, I mean, like I said, you know, there's people that kids go home and they have, there's nobody there. And, you know, they need people to mentor them and to help them with their homework and to, to do all these things. And it's, and in, in a lot of most, a lot of cases, the parents are doing the best they can, but they can hardly get by, you know, today, everything's so expensive and, and, uh, you know, the, the amount that look at what healthcare costs, right? You know, people are paying ten, twelve thousand dollars for healthcare a year, and and they're only making twenty five thousand or thirty thousand. Yeah, that's just not workable. You know, you you can't. So people are just working to to keep their kids fed, clothed, you know, and yeah. keep the family together. And so it's very challenging. So I I think that there needs to be a, a shift. Brass bands or bands could be one of these things. You know, yeah. uh, if, if, if communities, they have things like this, they have too many groups, they have too many different things. Everybody's trying to help, but there's 10 people in this group and they raise money. But if, if you took the 20 groups that are in Danville and you all picked out the same project for a month, yeah, there'd be a pretty good chance that it would get pretty much underway or done. So, yeah. so I think that that's where it's, Groups like the Salvation Army are fantastic because, see, they they are a, a hub for the community and their music. And a regular town brass band can do the same thing, uh, maybe not quite as well as a Salvation Army, but in a different perspective. People who are not, don't feel comfortable, let's say, doing a Salvation Army. Yeah. Or, you know, it's a, it's a different thing for their family. They don't want, you know... But, but other music can be very, very helpful because it brings all these ages together, you know, especially, yeah. especially regular brass bands that like the traditional ones from England. Yeah. They play until they can't hold their horn anymore. Yeah. And, and I think that, that a lot of brass bands in the United States could start youth bands um, because they, good. Can, they can do a lot of good. Um, well, your you know, band, your band is fantastic. I mean, they came to the band festival. It was, you know, it was great. I played Macarena with them. I remember. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, no. We have three of them now. Yeah. But I'm saying that, see, <laughs> but that just proves what we're saying. Yeah. People, the parents and the kids are looking for a reason to do, to do well. Yeah. They're not out there to make trouble and do this and that. They would really rather be a place where they feel comfortable. And brass bands, like I say, they have those those uh, blue hairs. They got the blue hairs. They got the medium age people. And they got the young people. They have a whole spectrum, and you can have lots of mentors in that group. Then some people feel like they want a grandfather figure, you know. Another person wants somebody just like them to hang out with. Another person they hardly get to be with. Uh, uh, somebody in their family that you know they really want to be with, and they find somebody like that in the in a, in a community group of some sort. And band is is a great thing because there's there's a commonality there. It's not just like a service group. There's a commonality of understanding and music and growth. 
you know, and, you know, as, with the brass band, when I was conducting is, uh, I wish I could have done it longer, but uh, when my father-in-law passed away, I, I really need to be home a lot more. And, and, uh, but I, I never conducted the band. I just stood there. <laughs> as soon as it, things started to go awry, I just stopped conducting. Yeah. And they stopped. Everything would just complain. I said, well, I said, you really need a conductor? I said, all I have to give you is my ears. Yes. I said, I want you to show me what you want to do with this music. And if you don't want to play in tempo, well, I can't make you play in tempo. I said, I really don't want to do that. And I would, I stopped the band a lot. Uh, and I'd say, okay, uh, what, what are we supposed to be listening to here? I, does anybody yeah. know? You know, well, because, because that's the secret to, improving the level of the band is to be improved the knowledge and the ears and the ability of the players in it otherwise yeah. it's otherwise it's like beating a you know beating a horse until it wins a race and then it dies <laughs> yeah well that's the true the true brass band tradition is yeah. that the people that stand in front of brass bands are trainers they're band trainers right okay and in america when there's an opening with a brass band, they try to find a degreed college professor yeah. to stand in front of the band. And yeah, that doesn't they're, work. they're not necessarily band trainers. So it's, it goes back to that wind ensemble, you know, American band, community band process. It, and the best bands are the ones that have brass players standing in front of them, training them how to be brass players and, and band, you know, and musicians. I think it's a combination of, of, uh, of, understanding people and understand trying to constantly uh, but uh, passively uh, keep people thinking about the community that they're in that brass band community and uh, the value of what you're doing on a week-to-week -week basis uh, you know Lex the brass band I mean Ron you know he was a traditionalist when he conducted the band mm -hmm. he still I doubt if he's changed a lot, you know, and, and uh, he would, you know, he would expect people to be ready and he'd tell them what they needed to do. And if they didn't do it, you know, he'd get, he'd just go, well, gee, you know, he would get snippy. Yeah, he would. Well, you know, anybody, I used to call Ron up uh, at school when he was teaching, you know, I'd say, hey, Ron, what's going on? And he'd go, well, Let's see, today was a, you know, it was a pretty busy day today. And he'd go through this litany of stuff that he had done. He says, oh, well, why did you call? I'm sorry. I'd say, well, I was feeling bad about how hard I'd work today. And I call, if I knew if I called you, I'd see what a slug I really was. And I could just go right back to work. And he, he would just laugh, you know. But it was true. I mean, he, he was just a, a nonstop. And, and B is the same way non-stop workers you know they always they always had a mission every day you know they were there sounds like we have to do a podcast with ron holtz oh you got to he's the greatest he really is i mean you can he's the uh well he comes from you know the long tradition it, it's it's uh his dad was the link between the, the british brass bands you know here, the salvation army band in new york and then the camps in America. So Ron is is the link, really, and people like him, Phil Smith and Phil's dad. Because yeah. Phil's dad took over after Ron's dad, I believe. Yeah. I believe that's right. 
And, yeah. you know, and that that's really, really exciting. Because you see that that's, that's an important aspect of the whole thing. That's, that's why it breaks down in America because of the, the, uh, the societal differences, you know, uh, and also the, the, the extreme differences in population, you know, and it's the great part about America. And it's also the part that's the hardest because some things just don't fit together real well, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, the expectations are, or should be and are great for 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 the country, but when you when you're in a country that is is much more in a narrower you know perspective, and even though they have the same um, uh, economic problems and uh, stratification of the population and all that's not that different, but the cultural part of this, this the towns. I mean, you you look at the map of, of England. And if you, you can take London and it's just like a megapolis or whatever they call that, you know, it's just, but then you get outside there and there's a Manchester, you know, and there's a, you know, couple of cities here and there and the rest of it's all sheep and goats and cows, you know, and, and so some seaports along the way, you know, and, yeah. and it's the same thing in, in a sense in the U S like New York, you think about New York, you say, oh, New York, man, that's, that's too many people there. Well, yeah, in New York City there is, but there's only five cities in the whole state. Yeah. Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, and New York City. And the rest of it is like Kentucky. Yeah. Kentucky has probably a bigger percentage of people living in cities than New York does. Because the population, I mean, it's a much bigger state too. It's spread out, you know. So there's a lot of, uh, and there's differences. And of course, there's other differences in our country. There's just, the populations, I think all over are becoming, you know, more diversified in every every country, you know. So that's that's been a challenge. And uh, and of course, our uh, our country here started doing that a little earlier, in a way, I think, you know, maybe, maybe uh, Australia would be ahead of us, possibly, or New Zealand or something like that. I don't really know. I mean, that's something I, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't put uh, much credence to what I just said, except it's my guess, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we've, there's been, a, you know, civil war. And I mean, all these things happened 150 years ago. Yeah. And uh, I think that's stratified this country a little bit more than, you know, than maybe some other countries who didn't have that type of a. Yeah. England's civil war was way too long ago. Yeah. Really back there. They need a recent one. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but, you know, the, 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 the band movement, I mean, I, I, I think you can take uh, your Columbus, Ohio, as a bigger city that's done a good job with being able to. Of course, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh boy, Paul Drosty's up there. Paul yeah. and, and his uh, his son. Uh, uh, they they were special people again. And what's his name? And uh, uh, Susa Barley, Paul Barley. Yeah, he's the Sousa expert. Of yeah. course, he had a big part in that band. 
Danny King, who was a student of mine at UK. Right, right. Danny was principal cornet. He's still up there doing brass band and, and uh, Egan, Bob, I think it's Bob Egan. He plays second chair in that band. And, you know, and, and that, and also, you know, like uh, Rich Burkhart, um, he, you know, is sort of alone in, and Danny King and his wife really watch out for him. And I think one of the things is the way he's been in this band, you know, it's helped to make him feel more like, because Danny went to England on a, on a fellowship to study being a, pre, a principal cornet uh -huh. in a brass band and learning more of the cultural aspect as well as the playing part. That would have been way back in the 80s, right? Yep, 80s, 90s. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I think, I think the people that are lucky enough to have spent more time in brass bands in uh, England and, and in uh, Norway and uh, Sweden and places like that are in a much better position than to talk about this than I am, really, because, because their experience is, is so much more complete, you know. Uh, mine is, is I've played with a, a lot of different brass bands all over the place, you know, so I, I have a little bit of a sketch of things. But, you know, when you, when you, when you talk to some people that uh, uh, really play in a, a community uh, brass band in a, a different country, uh, they have a, a completely different, you know, uh, way of looking at what goes on in the brass bands here, you know, and, and uh, I don't know, I, I think, I think it's, in America, they made tremendous progress with brass bands, considering yeah. they no, there was no culture at all to start, really, except the lack of bands, <laughs> yeah. community bands, and the brass band became uh a new version of a, of a community band. Yeah. And, and of course, and it was a new literature and different instruments and competition, which I think some people really like that. And I think that's good. And, and, uh, you know, and of course, just guest soloists and listening to music, uh, brass band players listen to music a lot yeah. because they're, they're, they have to, 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 to learn what it's supposed to sound like. You know, you can't do that in a rehearsal. You right. Be, well, you'd be get your headaches, bad headaches. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's uh, one of the reasons we wanted to to talk to you on the, on this podcast is because yeah. you know you you've been you know involved in many of the 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 big time things in the brass band movement, the Great American Brass Band Festival, Brass Band of Battle Creek, you know, Lexington Brass Band in the in the early days, you know, all this all the soloist engagements that you've done, mm -hmm. you've been in in it without maybe intentionally doing it you've been an ambassador for brass bands for the bulk of your career so it was, yeah. it was great to to spend some time talking to you with some of your your recollections of all of these things while yeah. we we're well you can tell that i love it that's that's really i i you know i loved going to rehearsals and working with ron i love the different conductors we had with the brass band of battle creek the players in there were very unique and special and when we played together it was you know pretty marvelous and uh and then going around to different bands and sometimes rehearsing them uh you know they'd ask me if i'd conduct a tune i'd say oh boy that'd be great i said i'm not a conductor but i i'll see what i can do to help you know <laughs> and uh that that was that's fun you know if you could if you can be an a asset to some community that has the greatest value 
Yeah. You know, if, if I go to New York and play the Haydn trumpet concerto in Carnegie Hall, which I've played solos there, it, it doesn't mean as much to me. I mean, it just doesn't. You know, if somebody's in the audience going, well, is, Haydn is quite good. You know, I don't know if I like it as much as this other person. I'm going, who cares? You're there to listen to music. You know, that's all that matters. And, you know, I, I play, uh, I'm in, I'm at actually at Lake Cumberland right now. We have a house down here. Uh-huh. And, and uh, this summer, I had my mask and everything. I played in the, the church that I used to call it the Adams Family Church because it was covered with, like, you know, you couldn't get in it. It was closed. And they opened it up as a satellite church for the people that went out on their boats. They'd go there for, you know, like 45 minutes and then they were off on their boats. So I went there and played. And I've been playing there, you know, like every couple of months. Yeah. And I, and I played at the Russell Springs Church. And, and uh, I, I, I played at Scott Hershey's Church as much as I can. And the Danville, Danville uh, the Christian Church in Danville. And it mostly, most of it's volunteer. You know, it's it's yeah. something that you can do because you can do it. So I think that you know that's part of the thing that's changed over the over the years, and not because people don't want to do it for free or be an asset like that. Is they don't have the time or the money to do it. They, you know what I mean? You yeah. ask somebody to drive fifty miles, and that means that you know they're not going to be able to get something for their kid. Right. Or something. You know, and it, it's a, that's why the Advocate Band, uh, when we started that, I insisted uh, with George and George too, and that everybody got like $25 for their gas money. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Because I said, look, you can't ask these people to drive here. I mean, they, they, they'll do it, a lot of them. But, you know, it's nice if they, they get some money for their gas and maybe they'll stop at McDonald's and get a hamburger on the yeah. way to the rehearsal, you know, I said, so I said, we really need to do that. I said, I, you don't have to do that for me, but, but I think in general, we need to do things like that. We need to try our best. That's, I think also one of the, one of the best ways to raise money Yeah, is, is, uh, to not raise money, uh, for some project per se, because it's all a, uh, moving stuff. You know what I mean? Somebody gives you a hundred dollars. Well, you can move that to here or you can move it to there. You see, and, and so if you're raising money for somebody to, to drive, that means you're you're gonna move money somewhere else. Right. To come, yeah, I mean and the donation yeah. the donation for that hundred dollars for that person puts that other hundred dollars somewhere else. Right. It it moves that frees up the money. So I've always been that way. Even when I play gigs, I'm playing a, a gig next week, uh, actually night before the band festival at the at the country club, which I don't really like going to. And and <laughs> and, and, and uh, but I'm doing it, and the piano players getting paid twice as much as I am. Yeah. Because I'm going to donate the money I made to something. Yeah. And and he needs to get paid because he's the piano player. Right. You exactly. know. I'm just a person that lives here. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's the, now, like I say, I think, I don't think everybody should do that, but I think if that was the basic attitude and you could get a lot of people together thinking that way, uh, that's, 
you know, some people go out and do Habitat for Humanity. Right. Uh, some people work at the, uh, uh, I call it the Doggy Hotel, the uh, Humane Society. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the you know, and, and stuff like that. We give, we love that, that you know, and so you know, you, you people have different needs, but if you can find a way to 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 tap into that part of people's humanity, for the young people especially, and all other people that are interested in music especially today with everything that's going on and, you know, or not going on as the case may be. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's important to, to be present, uh, with, with the music that we do and people, I think people have noticed how different it is without music. They came, we played, uh, we played in the park, uh, Tuesday night. Yeah. With a small version of our big band. And the place was packed. Yeah. At Moondance, that little little place out there in Beaumont Center. And it was all kinds of people there. And everybody was saying, yeah, it feels good to be at a concert, doesn't it? Everybody's going, yeah. And they were still set, sit, uh, you know, sitting separate, yeah. six feet apart. But everybody was there. And the place looked full. And yeah. I'll tell you what, it, it was challenging to get through the concert. I hadn't played a concert that long in a while. And by breathing, you know, you're, you're breathing. Everything is, it's different practicing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Practicing is one thing. Playing playing with a whole band is another. Yeah. Well, we're going to find out tomorrow night. Chongo Brass Band is doing our first concert in a year. Oh, great. Great. That yeah. is so exciting. Uh, we're out in a picnic shelter and we're a field right by it. And we're hoping to get a bunch of people to come just come just because they want to see a concert. But, you know, like I, well, I programmed a lot of marches and a lot of chop killers just to get the band. Yeah. Well, that'll uh, that'll get people thinking anyway, right? Yeah, hope yeah. so. The, the reality yeah. will set in about halfway through the concert. People are going, "Oh my god, I haven't done this in a while." <laughs> That's yeah. what I was thinking at my concert Tuesday night. I was going, "Yeah, boy, I think I can get through the rest of this." <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. Well, Vince, thanks so much for well, uh, thank for you and doing this with us. Yes. Thanks Thank for you. thinking of me. Thanks for thinking of me. I, I'm always glad to help, and you can always let me know if you need anything, and I'll uh, do my best to help you. That's why we love you, Vince, because you're always there to lend a hand. Well, anytime. Yeah. You just give me a call. I, when I come down to visit Gabriel next time, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah, let me know. We'll and then I'll come and uh, do like a thing for you.